Last week I realized the uh, subject matter is heavy when we're talking about um, parenting. We're talking about discipline. We're talking about bad forms of discipline. Uh, it's all in us. It's all through the church. It's, it's all through the course of humanity. Uh, it's, it's the way that we are. We have uh, bad parenting riddled through us. And, but tonight, yeah, after having endured last week, tonight we get to talk about discipline done right. Discipline done right. And as I was thinking about discipline done right, I just want to, I think I want to just read through this uh, scenario with you. I was just re- reflecting on this and remembering, and, and I, I might have gone through this a little bit last week, but I just want you to think about this, this kind of first person um, account, maybe, of, of a discipline scenario. I remember how uh, worked up my heart was when I had sinned. I got in trouble in school. I came home and, and mom said, go wait for dad in your room. These are long three-hour waits, these ones here. My heart was anxious. Now consider this. You feel this. My heart going to my room and close the door. My heart's anxious, restless, is convicted, sorrowful, shame-filled, guilty. First grader, six, seven years of age, I don't know what to do with myself. I don't know how to fix these things. I don't know how to relieve the pain or the pressure that's on my heart. Finally, Dad comes home. I hear the garage. The front door opens. My heart starts to race faster. But this is like birth pains, right? The intensity picks up before the birth. The door of the house closes. Takes off his shoes and his jacket. I can hear these things going on. Then a conversation with Mom. Come on already. Come on already. You know, let's, let's go. But then, oh no, his footsteps go down the hallway and pass into his room. And the next thing I know, I hear two footprints stop right at the door. The turning of the knob, all this pressure and anxiety welling up inside my heart. He'd gone past my room to get the paddle, and now the door is swinging open. A quick look up to make eye contact. Oh yeah, that's you. I know that is. Eyes go back down. Shame, no contact. Head down. He takes a seat next to me. Begins to di- begins a discussion. What happened today, son? What happened today, son? He's fishing to see what my heart will say. My heart would like to lie, but I've done that before and it was bad. It didn't work out so well. Go for the truth. Go for the truth. My heart's pleading with me. Go for the truth. And then out of my mouth, truth comes forth. And that was relief. All of a sudden, there was a a relief. Is he still going to spank me? Dad began responding and reasoning through my sin. He even thanked me for my honesty. He said that God required him to spank me and that it would hurt him more than it hurt me. And he said that he needed to spank me twice. He He put a number to it, two spankings. Okay, okay. I hate spankings, but I know the number too. I'm only here because I was a fool. I I didn't have to make the same choice. I don't have to make the same choice in the future that I did at school. And if I take the spankings, I I please dad. And and dad says that God is pleased. And I've been spanked five times before. So two two sounds very reasonable at this point. I'm going to take these two spankings. It's going to hurt. But the pain of my sin, it seems like it might go away. My anxiousness is going. My anxiousness is kind of settled. It's already kind of settled in, in, my, in my chest and in my, in my gut. Dad prays with me. 
He issues the spankings and dad leaves and says he'll be back to check on me. I'm crying from the pain of the spankings a little, from the shame and guilt more. Why did I do this? Why did I bring this reproach on myself and my family? Why did I make dad have to come home from work and contend with this? But as the tears flow out of my eyes, the shame and the guilt seem to flow with them. Particularly from the fact that I know it's over. It's over. That's what dad will come back and say. I know because he's he said it before. This is what he always does. He comes back and he tells me this. He says that my guilt and my shame are gone. The spanking was enough to satisfy the wrath of God, who I offended most. He says that he personally forgives me. And then he will talk with me about soccer on Saturday. I will be in bed the rest of the night. But now, lying in bed, I have peace. Even before the tears have dried, I have peace. I don't feel condemned. I feel great relief. My burdens are gone. My heart has been made free. I feel the love of my dad for me. He is patient, gentle, wise, and just. And I believe that my dad really does know God. You know, this doesn't lead to salvation for me in my life. Uh, this, that, that wasn't a, a salvific experience, but it's amazing to me the way that that plays into the heart of a young person over the course of their life, right? Because that's a seed that gets planted, right? And that's a seed, the harvest of which you long to see, isn't it? You can, you can see what that will do for a heart as that heart looks at that whole process, that whole transaction, and what that transaction really communicates are attributes and characteristics about God that there is no other way for you to personally communicate to your child. Does that make sense? How else are you going to communicate justice, wrath, anger, righteousness in, in something similar? You, you, can't, you can't get that in something similar. This is the opportunity. This is the mode. This is the means. So we've had a, par- a parenting conversation going on with our biblical counseling series to equip all of us in our minds to understand when we're thinking about biblical counseling and we're thinking about that in terms of parenting and trying to offer help to parents, people with children, how would we come alongside them? Do we have enough in the scriptures to reason through, to, to understand what their needs are, what their failings may or may not be, how we can come along and offer assistance, what scriptures we would add to those things to help them to reason through their parenting, that there might be a different outcome in the future, that we might get new information today and sow new seeds so that as we come through the harvest of the past and we're dealing with that harvest now, that we're planting new seeds that are better informed and we look to the future and we have more certain hope of the future because of the better seeds that we've found to sow. So that's what we're trying to do. And so this conversation has been ongoing for a while. There's a portion of your notes that has a recap, and we've been through that last week. And the parenting priority is the glory of God, the G-O-G. And the goal of parenting is to be a faithful instrument in God's hands for actively bringing up my child according to biblical principles. The rest of those notes we can uh, cover at another time. I want to press into uh, tonight's lesson on parenting 
the, the parenting role, the biblical parent as the disciplinarian and how loving limits are and how wise rules are. That's what we're going to head down. How loving limits are and how wise rules are. But to, in order to do this, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And while you're turning there, I just want to mention that the case for biblical counseling has been made by Pastor Eric and myself and biblical counselors all over from Ephesians 6.4. You know this well. I'll read it to you while you're turning to Hebrews 12. But Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We like this passage because it's very simple and very clear. It gives the negative and it gives the positive. In order to bring them up, parents will need to wear multiple hats, just like business owners wear multiple hats. Business owners are often the sales rep, the technician, the bookkeeper, and the janitor, all in the same day, probably within the same hour. <laughs> same thing with parenting. Parents must be the disciplinarian, the teacher, the encourager, the evangelist, and the prayer warrior. Those are all the hats that parents wear. I'll miss a multitude of others. Last week, we looked at the failed disciplinarian approaches of parenting, and, and you endured that. And tonight, we get to look at the success in parenting, biblical parenting, parenting uh, and discipline that honors the Lord. So let's begin our time in, in the Word. We'll look at, at Hebrews here. And what I want to do here with Hebrews is I want to walk through uh, Hebrews 1, Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 11. And in 1 through 11, I'm just going to read and then I'm going to offer some comments and we're just going to walk through this text together. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance that every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race set before us. That's quite an admonition here. We're, we're going to run a race with endurance that's set before us. And the race that we're talking about tonight, one of many of our races, is the parenting race. It is beset on all sides with opportunity for sin. The sin that entangles us as parents is often selfishness and pride. But we can dump these. How can we dump these, selfishness and pride? Well, look at verse 2. It says we can dump these by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This should hearken your minds back to Philippians and, and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Knowing him and obeying him is, is sufficient for all of life and, and godliness. He gave us an example and he was full of joy in doing so, in running headlong into his own pain. Consider his pain to which he went willingly in, in contrast to your temporary pain when it comes to parenting, when you have children that are disobedient and disrespectful. In fact, verse 3 says, for consider him, consider his pain, for consider Christ who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It seems like parents need this verse quite a bit, don't we? <laughs> we can kind of feel the hostility rolling right off of those that approach Christ, right into the little sinners that we live with and the, the little manipulators that they are. We need this verse because we often grow weary. We need to see Christ. We need to honor his sacrifice by laboring longer, being more patient, denying self. So look at verse 4. 
You have not resisted yet to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. None of us has, has shed blood in our praying. And the reference here would be to Christ shedding his own blood while praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe in your parenting you have shed blood. <laughs> That's a real likelihood. But you haven't shed blood while praying. That, that's something that you haven't done. Look at verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Quoting from Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. This is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, the words of Solomon to his son. He says, discipline is the order of the day. Okay, it's, the discipline is the soup of the day. It's par for the course. Discipline is, is equivalent to the oxygen that you breathe. Uh, discipline is, is the gasoline in the engine of a love relationship with God. If it's going to go forward, it's got to have discipline. Discipline is love. Because discipline honors the, the righteous standard of God, which is, we're talking about the, the very character of God. And so we're looking at God's character and we're saying discipline comes out of him to everything that he's made. So why would that not necessarily then, if I am his, come out of me to the things that belong to me? Well, it, it most certainly does. It transfers right through. We, we need to be that way. Discipline is love. Because of the wretchedness of your sin condition, he scourges you to purge you of sin and to purge you of self. Now, as a Christian, this is something that, uh, in, a, in our unre- you look back at our unregenerate state, is, is purging and scourging something that you wanted? <laughs> oh, no, no. But the more that we look at the cross of Christ and the more that we, we gaze intently at, at, at our Savior and the sacrifice that he made for us, this whole idea of scourging actually becomes something that we're drawn to. We, we think about, Lord, how, how much more can you shave off of me, of my flesh, of my wickedness, of my corruption, of my selfishness, of my pride? And so scourging all of a sudden becomes something that we can actually long for and ask for. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline him? The answer is none. Any man who calls himself a father must also have performed discipline. Without giving discipline, a man is not a father. The converse is true as well. You see that in the next verse. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He is not your son, any child who you have not disciplined. The father and son relationship hinges on discipline. So too, so too, your relationship with God. Verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Now that's a noble approach. Verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. 
Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The discipline of fathers has the potential to be highly subjective. It is done as each man sees fit, which that's not the worst thing in the world. That's not bad. But in contrast with God's discipline, each chastisement of God is purpose-filled and highly intentional. It's designed with great intent for you, for your good. That's the way that we need to define and describe our parenting to our children. Are we intentional about the discipline that we author to them? How intentional are we? How intentional was God with you? How intentional is he moving forward with you? Continually intentional, right? Well, that's exactly what we want to see parents taking to their children. Intentionality. Intentionality. Don't you love intentionality? That's one, of, that's, that's one word that I look back on, on my relationship with Angela and our marriage. And somewhere along the way, somebody tucked that into our, into our front door. And we've held on to that one. Because in creating friendships, it helps to be intentional. Uh, when, when creating a loving relationship with a spouse, it helps to be intentional. You see where this goes? Where, where does this word intentional not get plugged into in your life? Because who is ultimately the most intentional? God is. God is. So important. God's aim is to make his children set apart, right? That, that word that came up in the text was that we may share his holiness He wants us sanctified. He wants us holy. He says, be holy as I am holy. And in saying so, he did not leave you powerless to complete this. We talked about that this morning a bit. Did he leave you powerless to complete his command to be holy as I am holy? Did he leave you powerless in that? No, no, he didn't leave you powerless. You have the Holy Spirit of the living God. You have the third person of the Trinity living in you. He did not leave you powerless to fulfill his command to be holy as I am holy. God designs all the affairs of your life, affording you perfect opportunity to learn to obey Christ, aligning then, aligning your will with the will of that Holy Spirit person living inside of you. I mean, if he's really there and you really know that, then you want to align your will with his will. That last statement in verse 11, discipline yields righteousness and righteousness is peace with God. And if we have peace with God, we've established the vertical relationship first. And if you have the vertical relationship, peace with God established and that righteousness, then you have then and only then, right? Only only then with this going on first, do you have the opportunity because you're receiving from him all of his characteristics, you're receiving love and joy and peace through his spirit into you, then you have the opportunity to press that out and move to the horizontal relationship. The vertical has to be established first and then the horizontal. And discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness so that the vertical, con- the vertical conversation with God, that vertical relationship is intact. And then you can turn and head outwards, and have horizontal relationships. And that's where we believe that you can discipline your children, and you can find peace in your home. If you first have a right relationship with God, and that comes into you, and you cause that to flow out at your children in the same fashion. There's great, great truths here in Hebrews 12. 
What an incredible passage, right? Just 1 through 12, what an incredible statement. God is the ultimate disciplinarian. The discipline of God has a direct correlation to the discipline established between a father and a son. God's discipline will come with pain, and both the discipline and the pain are loving. They're loving because their aim is perfect. It's, it's not a, a, a misfiring or a misshot for God to seek your righteousness and your holiness. And so when he disciplines you and gives you pain for your good so that it yields righteousness in you, that shot was perfect and intentional and it hit the mark. So we do these things for the glory of God. For the glory of God. It all has to come back to his glory. That's the major parenting priority. In order to get God glory, we must take cues from God regarding discipline and love. And so now we need to consider six ways in which discipline comes from setting limits. Discipline comes from setting limits. The first way that, that love shows up in, in setting these limits is, love, uh, is, is that limits create a learning environment. Limits create a learning environment. How effective would your workplace be without boundaries? Some people like the idea of no office, right? No walls, no four walls to go into. They like the, to free range it out in a coffee shop. But even if they're in a coffee shop on their own, they're still in four walls. <laughs> okay, go to the park. But even if you're at the park, I know that you still have boundaries. At work, you still have boundaries. Even if you're sitting on a park bench or sitting down at the end of Grand Boulevard watching the ocean waves come in, you still have to monitor your output. And, and there still has to be productivity. And you still have to operate within the bounds of finances. So for business owners, there's boundaries. There's limits set. Okay? And what's interesting about boundaries and limits being set for humanity is it starts to create economic activity. And all of a sudden, there's a marketplace, and there's goods being produced, and all of a sudden, joy and happiness follow from, bound, from, from something as simple as boundaries, just having four walls and a desk to sit at so that you can drive toward output and you can keep budgets balanced. This, the boundaries then create success, and that comes from setting limits. Who does God trust to set limits for your children? He trusts you. He trusts you. But only in so much as you love him and desire to please him desire to have your conscience and your life impacted by his word. Setting limits is your responsibility and your privilege. You are a reasonable human being, right? Would that be okay to say? I mean, you're, because if you're not a reasonable human being, then I wouldn't want, you know, we could probably, it would probably be the case that you're going to end up in front of a judge pretty soon and they'll take your children from you because the state doesn't even like you being unreasonable with your children. But if you're a reasonable human being, and the state is, you know, they try to be reasonable, then it's, it seems to me that we're headed down a road where God's establishment of limits can be set in the child's life and yield righteousness from them. That's what we want. God believes that you're a reasonable human being, and he believes that you understand his word, and he believes that you can create a learning environment for your children by setting limits. So create a learning environment. They must know the boundaries. The boundaries must be defined, and they must be defended. Ultimately, the aim is the heart of the child. And by setting boundaries, what we'll see later is you get the opportunity to actually point them to the gospel. We've talked about that even last week. Well, second, limits help to establish order. Setting limits is loving because it establishes order. And with order, the opposite would be chaos. In your home, you cannot have order and chaos at the same time. Has anybody had that, by the way? 
Do you, you try that? Order and chaos at the same time? What does ordered chaos look like? How do you explain that? Do you have the ability to offer it to others? Instead, you need to decide, right? Is our house going to be a house of order or our, is our house going to be a house of, of chaos? The way of the world is chaos. In fact, every way other than the righteous standard of God will yield chaos continually. So order then becomes something that's divine. Okay? Order becomes a divine blessing. Order shows, our, our word again, intentionality. Order shows thoughtfulness and order practices joy, peace, and security. Order is only found when we choose to follow God's righteous standard. So I want you to consider with me. Consider the fruit of the harvest of chaos and order. We'll start with chaos. The seeds of chaos, they yield these things. This is what chaos yields. It yields laziness. Chaos yields carelessness, foolishness, and major lackings in self-control. This might even come with multiple trips to the emergency room and may lead to a knock on the door by Child Protective Services. Chaos is unwelcoming to guests, friends, and family because chaos is dirty often and sticky and gummy. Chaos leads to friendships that are disappointing, if any friendship at all, because chaos says, my way is better than any other way. My way is better than God's way. So that whole order thing is thrown off and I've accepted my chaos and my way and you can take God's way and the order and run and do something different with it. So order and chaos, that's the fruit and the seeds of, of chaos. But on the other hand, what is the fruit of order? If we grab order and we sow order into our life, the harvest of sowing order into a home is self-discipline, prudence, wisdom, hard work. The intentionality of parents, it becomes something that is soaked into the kids. They thrive inside the necessary structure created by the parents. These kids see the natural relationship between order, hard work, and friendships. They see that hosting friends for a meal and games requires a team effort to provide food and create a clean, welcoming environment, an environment where hospitality is truly enjoyable. And they are willing to put forward the effort because they know the value of the friendship. Parents who establish order show their kids the value of effort, the value of being intentional with our minds and our hands, that we might be a blessing to God and to others. And oddly enough, it's funny, when you set your mind and you focus on God and you focus on others and you focus on serving, so we said that the focus is already on God, right? Okay, so we're not going to change from that. We're saying the focus is on God. It's funny, though. It's funny. Isn't this funny? When you do that, he always blesses you. You, you always have a gain in that. But there's this teeter-totter in our minds where we play this game where we think, no, I need to do something more for myself. I need to get over there. I really want to make it nice for me. But if you take that paradigm and throw that out of your mind and realize that if you focus on God and do what he says, and, the, and that causes you to focus on others, it's amazing how he lines everything up so nicely for your life. In this process, we find incredible blessings. So you've got the opportunity in your home and you want to see this in the, in the lives of the parents that you would counsel. You want to see them choosing order over chaos. Okay? 
So in setting limits, limits that are, are loving, they're shown in this, that they also protect children. Number three, limits protect children. Parents are the brakes for the children. They help to slow them down. Everybody's ridden in a go-kart before. It's got a governor on it, which means that you can't go 70 miles an hour in the go-kart because it's got a governor on it. It only allows you to go 15 or down the street like three. (laughs) So three-mile-an-hour go-kart. You're the governor that regulates the speed of the go-kart of your kids' lives down to three miles an hour. You're the governor. You're the brakes. What you teach them goes into their heads and informs their conscience. And you need to put many and good thoughts into their minds so that when you are not present, they leave the knives alone. But we have more in our, in our uh, cares and concerns for our children than they, that they just leave the knives alone when you're away from them. How do, you, how do you make it through the checkout at Walmart without setting limits, without having a value system, without having a set of, of standards? Our kids face a, a host of external influences most of which we cannot control. And yet we're able to be a major influence ourselves to them in how the outside world is received into their hearts. We need to help them receive the outside world into their hearts. We need to help protect them, setting boundaries and setting limits. Remember, they're immature, right? We've already established that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. They're naive and they're even gullible. Biblical parents will care about the influences their child's their children receive, the content of those influences, the frequency of those influences. You know, are are you okay with the state law that doesn't allow your children to drive until 16 years of age? That's reasonable, right? We, We like that. We understand that. Okay. Well, that's the state setting a parameter on your house and on your child. And it works. And it works well for a reason. Well, just as the state does that for your child when they're 16... Isn't there reason for you to have those same kind of parameters when the child's 12 and when the child's 8 and when the child's 4? Absolutely. Biblical parents protect their children from a world full of influence and experiences by establishing limits, limits to protect children. Setting limits is loving in that it prepares children for life. It prepares children. Limits help to prepare children. Limits are going to be a a constant in your child's life. Far better that they learn to live under your limits now. You have such great opportunity to give them good limits, God-honoring limits, which afford them a chance to see the goodness of God in limits. But also, as we've discussed, they get to see that they break limits, that they need limits discipline, that they need the gospel. That's another reason why you set limits. So they see that they are inherently rule breakers, rule violators. Consider this, as far as limits go, your your child is already limited by God. They're born in the 21st century. They're born into a home, into your home, with its economic conditions, its social status, born into the central coast, not Los Angeles or Mexico or Singapore, They are limited in ability, giftedness, learning capacity, income capacity, health, and all kinds of social opportunity. These are already limitations, and all these limitations are given by God ultimately for what purpose? Why does God give all of those limitations to your children? Glory of God. Exactly. 
He gives them to, to them for his glory because he wants to see what they're going to do through him in that circumstance that they've been dealt. Those are their cards to contend with. Whatever the state of your parenting is, that's their card to contend with. And God's not unloving or unjust in giving you to them and them to you. Your limits at home point the child to the greatest reality, that they were made in the image and likeness of God for one purpose, to glorify God and to worship him and serve him with every breath they breathe. This is how you prepare a child for success, by setting limits that meet God's righteous standard. You're preparing that heart for success. Don't play the social game where you sell them a reality at home that doesn't exist anywhere else. Don't play this game. Don't suppose that maximum freedom is what they need at home because they won't get maximum freedom when they come visit my house. You can't jump on the tables and the chairs at my house. When, we, when I ask you to sit at the table, you will sit at the table at my house. And we will pray for the food at my house before we eat it. And, and I'm not going to give you the same latitude down here in the children's wing with, with, the, with the child care ministry. You don't get that latitude here. Don't come and bring your house in here. Someone will stand. Someone will stand. Someone will bring the righteous standard of God. Can you do that at grandma and grandpa's house? Can you just run roughshod all over their house? No. They have standards at their house too. So it's a real bad idea to play this social experiment game at home and create your own system that doesn't conform to what everybody else is doing. What is everybody else needing to do? What focus, what standard does everybody need to have? It's, this is funny. Can you imagine the joy for all of us? Parents, brothers, sisters in Christ, grandma and grandpa and the kids. If everybody was focused on the righteous standard of God, can you imagine if everybody was informed of his standard through his word and if everybody sought with humility to meet his standard. Hey, you know, I'm an eternal optimist. I believe it can happen. And if I can't get it here, I'll get it in glory because it's coming. This is where we're headed to. Limits prepare children for success here and eternally. Setting limits is loving that it reveals, point number five, it reveals teaching needs. It reveals teaching needs. I would hope that all biblical parents would be able to tell me in a moment what areas of instruction are valuable to their kids right now. In order to do this, they must have a pulse on their children's needs. And setting limits helps you determine the pulse of your children's needs. Where are they disobedient? What time of day is that activity keep happening or that attitude keep happening? What has been going on? What activity is next that they might be thinking about? What words are they using? How long has this been the case? What discipline was tried? What was taught the last time? Is more grace needed? Is more truth needed? How can I come alongside them better? These are great diagnostic questions to ask and to consider as a parent. We get the chance to ask these only if we have set limits. We must set limits if we actually have expectations of our kids' behavior, it's only then that we can see what standard they've violated and how critical is it at that point to make sure that our standard is not our own, is not a pharisaical righteous standard, but a standard of God's righteousness. Failure is very revealing. Failure is very insightful. 
we can look at the Garden of Eden and see what caused the failure. What did they need? What was lacking? Did they have the Holy Spirit of God inside of them? Don't waste the failures. Identify what lessons need to be communicated. Know clearly in your mind the the answer to the question, because their offense was against God, what standard of God's has my child violated? And then know your Bible. Know it so well that you will have a fighting chance to offer something biblical for them to see the error of their way. You see how that works? You see how those components squish together? You're looking at God's righteous standard. You're figuring out how the child violated it. You're going to confront them with that. But don't go in empty. Go in loaded. Know what God's righteous. What is Ephesians 6.1? How does that relate to their life? all All the passages in Proverbs that we've talked about. Their failure must bring you a teaching plan. What does my child need to learn? What do you need to teach them? How are you going to do that? So setting limits is loving in that it reveals a teaching plan. And finally, setting limits is loving because, number six, it exposes an inability and the child's greatest need. Just As, as we just mentioned, failure is good because it shows what parents need to teach kids. Failure is, is better for this. There's, there's something even better that failure shows. Fail, failure shows children their inability to meet God's requirement. For example, the biblical parent might have their child address men and women with their uh, proper greeting. So Mr. and Mrs. Hansen become become the standard because we expect our children to respect elders. So that's the standard. We desire for our children to respect their elders. Okay, that's great. And the children might conquer that standard and make a good habit out of it. And yet, if that same child comes and interrupts a conversation between adults... Do they really understand the biblical command of humility? Without humility in place, respect of elders can turn into a duty, a formality. The standard is right, but it needs the biblical focus. And we are after, and what we want is humility. A humble heart says, Mr. and Mrs. Hansen. But a humble heart also waits to interrupt when adults are speaking. By tying our limits off to biblical truths, the child's heart will be exposed and the great inability will be seen. The inability of the child to please God, except that God comes to them and helps them. Again, the heart is the aim and the greatest need of the child is Christ. I want you to consider a chart that's on the back of your page, I believe. You guys, can someone show me? Is there a chart there on the back? That one right there, up at the top. That's, that's the one. Standard, sin, need, chart. Walk through this. If there's no standard, if there's absolutely zero standard, could there possibly be sin? There's no standard. So no standard, complete and total freedom. There's no sin. You, you can't violate anything because there's no standard. And if there's no sin, is there a need for a savior? No. No, there's nothing. Okay, so then what, what happens if we have standard, but it's man-created standard? It's low standard. Well, that becomes pharisaical, right? That becomes man-created, man-generated rules of which we just perform and we get success. Is there a need for a savior when you can perform what man asks and find success? Do you need a savior then? 
You don't because you find success just by doing what man says. Just do what man says. Just do, just do your 12-step program. Do what man says, and that's success, and then you're all good. Are you all good then? No, you're not all good because something incredibly important is missing. But that last one says it all, right? God's standard. If we apply God's standard, if we seek God's standard, then we understand that sin is everywhere. It's everywhere. It's constant. And it requires the need of each and every heart to know the Savior in order to make sin right, to make sin go away, to correct it, to, to, correct it, to forgive it, to overcome it. When we show them God's standard, they can actually see that sin abounds. Now and only now does the message of Jesus Christ crucified make sense to them. That's when it makes sense. So biblical parenting is loving because it chooses to set limits in all of these areas. But biblical parenting is also wise, and there are five reasons we want to discuss why biblical parenting is, is wise. It's wise in the rules that it gives. Rules that are reasonable. Reasonable rules. God gave ten commandments. Pretty simple. Pretty straightforward. Jesus was even able to reduce these down to two commandments. And yet the Pharisees saw fit to take the Ten Commandments and turn them into more than 600, 600 commands. This is burdensome and unreasonable. It's kind of like we saw with the government under the Obama administration. No offense to him personally. 2009 to 2016, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, was allowed to bring forward 3,900 new rules, roughly 500 rules per year, that effectively amounted to 33,000 pages of federal legislation to protect your environment. How is that for burdensome? Is this type of effort something that can be sustained? It, it fails to recognize that God has set the world in motion and that he made a promise in Genesis 8 that guarantees that he, God, will protect the environment. We don't need an EPA. We, we've got God. You know, a brave president would take a copy of Genesis chapter 8 from the Bible, put it on pink paper, and tape it to the doors of the EPA after changing the locks. Did you catch that? <laughs> they don't need to show up for work anymore. God is a reasonable lawgiver. Biblical parents need to be reasonable lawgivers as well, following God's example. Our reasonableness, we, we can look at the age and the maturity of our children, and, and we can look at the idea that they're going to comply differently, Right? The four-year-old doesn't clean up as fast as the 12-year-old. But oddly enough, the four-year-old takes out three times as much as the 12-year-old, so there's three times as much to clean up. We give patience. We give encouragement, and we keep kids on task. We acknowledge when they've given effort and, and even come alongside them. We punish sloth and rebellion, and we have great concern over their attitude, over their attitude. Can your child hold a job at 18 with hard work and a terrible attitude? You're going to take that, Dave? You're going to take an employee with a terrible attitude? <laughs> I don't think so. So, no. You know, sometimes we feel like we can work with someone who might be a little bit sluggish, but why do we have to contend with the attitude? Well, then be loving. Don't allow poor attitudes to stand in your home. Be loving. When you see a poor attitude, confront it. Do something about it. This is reasonable. So rules are reasonable. Rules are definable. Point number two, rules are definable. All of us love clear instruction. God gave specific instruction for the ark. 
God gave a specific and clear command to kill all of the Amalekites. God's command to General Joshua to be strong and courageous, that was clear. Perhaps what challenges most parents today is the failure at this point. Failure belongs to the parents, not the children. In fact, your failure to communicate clearly exasperates your children. Parents are not clear. They say things like these. It would be nice if you could pick up your socks. That's sarcastic. Or they say, the purpose of the linen basket is to contain your socks. Or at church, you might hear something like this. Little Donald, I need you to stop now. But the child has their back turned to the parent who's saying that. And the parent's statement came in mid-conversation with another adult. Problem, problem, problem. Is that clear communication? All of you are looking at me right now as I'm preaching, right? None of you have your back turned to me. I'm I'm, I'm expecting your comprehension as I'm seeing your eyes. Nothing got this this point more clear to me uh, than, than two instances. One where I was the recipient and one where I was the deliverer. When I was the recipient, I was a naval uh, officer down uh, officer candidate school in Pensacola, Florida. And it was toward the end of my time down there. And on the weekend, on Friday afternoon, uh, as, a, as a candidate officer, one of the seniors that was looking to leave, the, the junior candidates were coming through to check out for the weekend to go on Liberty. And there was this line that went out the door. And we thought, you know, this would be funny. You know, maybe somebody would like to get to the head of the line. Maybe they could entertain us all by singing a song. And so we kind of went into these, you know, little pranks and games. And we were standing there having a good time. And these kids were, these guys were singing, you know. And uh, this drill instructor, Gunnery Sergeant Burleson, never forget that name. He comes walking by and he looks down the hallway and he sees someone standing in the middle of the hallway belting out some, you know, song from some 80s movie or something like this. And he comes marching down there. He grabbed all of us in leadership, threw us in the office, and he starts giving us exactly what he thought about this. Well, what's funny is in the midst of this conversation, I take my hands and I put them on my hips like this, and I've got my my feet at shoulder width, and I'm kind of looking at him, and I'm I'm kind of intent and, and kind of outraged even. My mouth's kind of like, are you kidding me? He saw me standing there like this, and he, in in mid-sentence, he comes over and he smacks my arms down. My arms, they, they were like this and they went like this instantly. And when they went like this, then my feet snapped together. <laughs> it's kind of funny how that happened. And the look on my face changed and I realized he's in charge of this moment. I'm not in charge. I don't even get to have my hands where I want them. He's going to communicate a message to me about the whole package. That stuck, that stunk with me. No, it, it stuck. It stunk too, but, <laughs> but it stuck with me. It stuck with me and I was coaching hockey and I had my uh, high school team on the ice. I've got these 12, 15 kids out on the ice. We're trying to run drills and I, I pull them all together and I, and I start telling them what the next drill is going to be and trying to refocus them and gather them. And, and I realized that all the eyes were just going all over the place. And I'm looking right past me. You'll give me the 10,000-yard stare. And I'm going, how am I not? And all, I just stopped and I just turned around and looked. And I realized the other team was down there with their practice going on. And my guys were kind of watching what was going on, on the other side. And I realized, huh, maybe I should do something different here. So the next time that I asked them for their attention, I went up against a wall like this. And the other guys were playing over there. And I had them gather in front of me here so that they were looking at a wall. 
just environmentally, just controlling the circumstances. So when your child needs a reprimand in the fellowship hall, it's not about just speaking the words and, and muttering them at them. It's actually breaking the conversation, moving your feet, getting down and grabbing little Susie and turning her around and making sure those eyes are just locked right on you and then, and then having this conversation with clear communication so that they know that you're intent and then making sure to follow up after them so that they get the job done. You see, the rules have to be definable and it's on parents to make sure that they're clear and definable. We're the ones that take responsibility for that. We're the ones in charge of that. Well, rule uh, number three, rules are useful. Rules that are useful. What makes a a rule useful to their children? Turn your Bible to Galatians 6, 7 to 9. Galatians chapter 6. What makes a rule useful to your children? Well, rules become useful when they are like a smooth stone. Get this imagery with me. When the rule becomes like a smooth stone, that if they accurately grab hold of this smooth stone and with obedience and care, they throw it, they can kill two birds with one shot. The rule is like a stone that if they throw it with obedience and care, they can hit two birds with one shot. What birds are they trying to shoot down? We want their obedience to get them success with man and God, with us and with their Father in heaven. Here's the idea. Rules are useful if they model biblical principles, particularly the biblical principle of cause and effect. Your disobedience of me causes your disobedience to God, which causes your punishment. You need to have, the the question would be, have your rules been designed such that if A occurs, then B is next? If they sow good, then they reap good, but if they sow bad, then they reap bad? This is done by trying to, by, by tying the rules to repeated biblical truths. We tie the rules off to repeated biblical truths about God's character. And in this way, if they obey They find success twice over. They find success twice over. Success in honoring mom and dad and success in honoring God. But if we make those Pharisee rules, right? If we make those Pharisee rules, is there any opportunity that they can honor God if they're obedient? Those are bad stones. You don't want to hand those to the child. But you want to hand them these nice smooth stones that have your rules lined up with God's rules so that when they fire, when they grab that and they're obedient to it and they fire it, it hits two birds with the same stone. Galatians 6, 7 to 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So we give rules. And we ask the child, which way will you choose? And we make it so clear. If you do what I'm asking, which has a biblical basis and will honor God, then you will have this harvest. But if you choose not to obey, then this will be the consequence and the harvest of your action. 
So you make the, the desire of your parenting the same desire of God's righteous standard. And with those two things aligned, that kid's only option is to choose to obey. Or if they choose disobedience, then you know God's righteous standard for disobedience too, and you can handle that. You can, you can sort that out. But the, the choice becomes so clear to the child. Who doesn't want two for one on their shot with a smooth stone? You, you want that, right? And now you're given the opportunity to give that to the child if your rules aren't pharisaical, if your rules match God's righteous standard. You line them up for the kids. Make it easy. Make it easy so they can take out two with one. Cause and effect. They need to understand this. Cause and effect. The other terminology for cause and effect, sowing and reaping. Cause and effect, sowing and reaping. Through sowing and reaping, you want your kids to see that every time they choose to grab one of your rules, one of the smooth stones, and they choose to obey it with all their heart, they can always kill those two birds. They can always please you and please God. That's encouraging to a child, tremendously encouraging to a little person. There's a conversation on on sowing and reaping that I'd like to have, and and I think that that might take more time than we're afforded tonight. Might just be time to to wrap it up and ask some some questions and and answer some questions. Um, Biblical parenting. Uh, We're not trying to create something, a, a system... Of, of rules that is overbearing, that is a, a burden that you place on someone's shoulders that they can't do that load, that that load is too much. We, we want to put a, a, a load on the shoulders of parents that's light, that, that this light load that we, can, that we will also come alongside and help to bear that load. We're not going to put something onto, onto parents that they can't manage themselves or that we couldn't manage ourselves. So... This is why we cover this material. We, we want to be honoring to God and we just feel like it's, it's every bit of an opportunity to make biblical parenting simple, to honor God in the process and to have the joy and the fruit and the peace that comes from it. And so that's what these are after. So we've looked at limits. We've looked at rules. We've gone into the conversation about sowing and reaping. There's more, there's more to that conversation. We'll pick that up because there's rewards and there's consequences and, and flowing out of the consequences is a conversation about discipline, about the correction, about the rod. And so that's what's on your notes that we're kind of going to take a bypass on tonight. We'll see about maybe picking it up next week. But uh, with that, um, I will pray for us and, and we'll conclude our time. If there's any questions, I'd be more than happy to field them. But biblical parenting is not challenging. It's challenging because of our selfishness and our pride. We put those down and we pick up our cross and we follow Christ daily and all of a sudden these things become so desirable and so necessary and we want to follow them. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word and the clarity in it. And Lord, we ask that you would um, just be with everyone here in their opportunities that they have in life to come alongside of parents. And Lord, help this conversation to, to stick with us, to be something that we can carry into those relationships and and to know and to see where failures happen and, and how things go astray. To see where your righteous standard hasn't been upheld and what needs to happen as a result. Lord, I, I pray that these things would sit well in our hearts, that they would all make sense and be clear. And Lord, that you can use them for your glory in the future. We pray all these things to your name, to your praise.
Christ's name we pray. Amen.